Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the lament psalms that we have in the canon of scripture that give voice to our pain and our hurt and moments when we would wonder, Lord, I don't know if I can do this anymore. We, we come today wanting help, and Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here today who are in the crucible of suffering that through Psalm 13 you would meet them and find them and pour your grace upon them. And for others who this Sunday will be preparation for something in the future, I ask that you would ready them, steal them for a moment in their future when they will experience hardship, and that in thinking about this today they'll be ready to be able to bless your name, because pain will come. Oh, how it will come. So help us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I suggested to you that pain is both not tame and also it is common. And if that is true, that pain is both untamable and common, then it is a great mercy that God gives us psalms of lament. Because it is in the psalms of lament that we find a voice for what is happening inside the soul when you are in pain. And further, it is through the psalms of lament that we see a path develop where a person can understand both their pain and be able to seek the Lord and know what they ought to think and what they ought to feel. In that respect, the psalms of lament are incredibly helpful because they, they give us direction as to how we should pray and how we should talk and how we should respond when grief or hardship come. One of the joys of um, preaching to the same body of believers week in and week out is that after you say things, people have an opportunity to respond. And it never ceases to amaze me the amount of pain that is within the four walls of College Park Church every Sunday. After last week's message, a um, person in our church sent me this email, and with permission I read just a section. Here's what she wrote. Mark, I'm struggling. Struggling just to want to get up, struggling to pray and read my Bible. Every time I start to pray, I just start crying because I don't understand God's ways. I struggle with even questioning God's ways. Who am I to question His will for me? But I do question. And there have been long dry spells where I don't want to read my Bible or pray. Even writing things or opening up about my feelings is hard. I just try and smile and act like everything's okay. The word struggle seems to define my life right now. People ask how I'm doing, and when I say it's a struggle, they look like, like look at me like I've grown horns in a third eye. I feel as if they think I'm not trusting the Lord enough or my faith is weak. I've almost felt like I was being sinful by still grieving. That's, that's real. So this, this email highlights so many things, but there's one thing in it that is really important in particular to see and to feel, and it's this, that when you experience grief and pain, you are put into a moment that involves a very challenging tension. In fact, I think that is the essence of why pain or grief is so scary and why it is untamable, because it puts you in the middle of seemingly irreconcilable realities, irreconcilable truths. You feel two things at the exact same time. 
You feel pain and loss and you feel trust. And they just are. In fact, when we were grieving the loss of our stillborn daughter, Sylvia, in 2004, I summarized it this way, that we are living in a tension between pain beyond belief and divine sovereignty beyond comprehension. Living in this tension between pain that you can't even believe how hard it is and divine providence or divine sovereignty that just is beyond your ability to understand. And these two things, the pain and the providence, they just exist side by side. So Psalm 13, like few other psalms, shows us this tension between pain and providence so clearly. And that's why I love it so much, because it's honest, but it's not static. In other words, it's gut-level real, but it doesn't just stay in the lament. It deals with the reality of what's happening in the heart of a man who is really struggling and suffering. And what this psalm does, Psalm 13, is it gives us a roadmap of how to walk this tension-filled journey when we come into pain. Also, I think it helps when you're ministering to someone in pain to know what to say and what not to say and how to walk with them. So this psalm, I think, is incredibly helpful. So to try and make this roadmap somewhat memorable and hopefully more useful, I've summarized this cry of how long, O Lord, into three steps for you today. And they go like this, pain, then prayer, then providence. Pain, prayer, and providence. And I remember, and you can probably, if you've been through pain, remember walking through these steps of pain, and then prayer, and then providence, and back to pain, and prayer, and providence. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, this path in Psalm 13. First, this notion of pain, dealing honestly with our feelings. Look at the first Two verses. How long, O Lord? Notice that there's four how longs. And hopefully you'll remember that repetition in the Psalms is a literary device to emphasize something that is important. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So there are four things that the psalmist is grieving over. In verse 2 at the end, he's, he's grieving because he feels like his enemy is being exalted over him. He's wrestling, in verse 2, with the internal reality and the sorrow and that it doesn't seem to end. In verse 1, he, he longs for God to be near to him again. And he longs for God, in verse 1, the first part, to see his plight and to help him. So, we don't know what the circumstances are here that led to the writing of this psalm, but we get a clue in verses 1 to 2, and it seems as though that he has some sort of enemy that has gotten a victory over him, and this, this external enemy has then led to an internal wrestling that is deep, that is spiritual, and that has produced continual sorrow. And, and while the enemy seems to be the direct cause of his pain, there is a spiritual component that goes along with his pain that is very challenging. In other words, this is a complicated thing. He's got an external enemy, but he has an internal battle. And what he is struggling with is that while he has this enemy on the outside, he is wondering why God seems so distant when he is hurting. The pain of his life... This enemy has created a spiritual wrestling with God's purposes. 
with God's plans and with God's care. And it's safe to assume that he, this is not the first time that he's cried out to God. My guess is his desperation just begins to show how long, how long, how long, how long, he says. And that leads me to believe that this issue in this text is not just the pain in his life, but he is mourning over God's lack of immediate help and then the effect on his soul. So pain, therefore, has led him to feel some concerning things about God, things that he's wrestling with. The first thing is he feels like God is no longer blessing him. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, God's face in the Old Testament was really synonymous with his blessing. In fact, the most famous blessing in the Old Testament is the Aaronic blessing from Numbers chapter 3. Here's what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so the fact that he's hiding his face from him means that he doesn't feel as though the blessing of God is coming his direction anymore. Secondly, he is lamenting the fact that it feels as if God has forgotten him. He says that, in effect. He says, will you forget me? In the Old Testament, one of the greatest realities about who God is and was is the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. He makes promises. He keeps his promises. However, when you're in pain, there is this clear sense that you're in a season where it looks as if God isn't keeping his promise. I've called these seasons the dark side of the will of God. Oh, you know he's going to keep his promise, but right now you're on the dark side. You're in the waiting season. God had promised he would deliver his people from Egypt, but it was some 400 years until that happened. Generations came and went. He was going to keep his promise, but depending upon where you were born, your assessment of that promise-keeping God might be a little different. Pain rarely feels like a blessing, nor does it feel like God is close. And then third, notice that he is afraid. You see, when you're in a dark season, there is a real fear that this feeling, this reality, this how longness of the sorrow will continue indefinitely. He wonders, like anybody who in pain wonders, how long he could endure this. And and the reality is, if you've been through a season like that, it's an exhausting battle to not let your mind and heart slide into some self-defeating pattern of hopelessness where you think this is never going to end. I love this psalm because it's so gutsy and real. He says, how long will you forget me? And then he could have left it there, but he didn't. He said this, how long will you forget me forever? The word forever is a word that means continually. It means perpetually. It means totally. He didn't have to say forever. He could have said, how long will you forget me? But no, he adds forever. How long will you forget me totally? How long will you forget me completely? How long will you, com- will you forget me forever? What happens here, friends, is that this is a window to the soul of a man in pain who in his fear expresses that he worries that God will never provide relief to him. Now, if you read the Psalms like you're supposed to read the Psalms, you should immediately have a question in your mind. 
And it is this. Is he allowed to talk to God like that? Really? It's one thing to say, how long will you forget me? But David amps it up. To say to God, how long will you forget me totally? How long will you forget me completely? Are you allowed to talk to God like that? That raises a question that many of you have asked over the last number of weeks about the Psalms. If you read the Psalms long enough, you'll find that people sometimes say pretty disturbing things in them. For instance, Psalm 56, 3. Oh, break their teeth, God. Are you allowed to pray that? Get in a fight with your spouse? Break her teeth, God. Just, I mean, are you allowed to pray that? What about this one? Psalm 137, 9. This is rough. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. These are called imprecatory psalms. They're a subset of lament. And the question is, sometimes the the psalms make disturbing statements, and what do we do with them? These are painful words, and it kind of seems odd, doesn't it, that they're in the Bible? Or is it odd? Why would God put this kind of language in the scriptures, why would he inspire words like, how long will you forget me forever? Why does he make statements that aren't safe in the Psalms? I think because these statements in the harnessing of pain, as a person talks to God and through God verbally, become incredibly helpful. There is something very helpful and I think spiritually honest about talking to God about what's really going on in your heart. The reality is, he knows it's there anyways, doesn't he? So I think the Psalms help us in that they tell us, just tell him what's going on. Because he knows it's there already. When you pray awful things... It's not as though God says, oh, I didn't know you felt that. Now, some of you are wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So is it possible, Mark, to sin with what you pray? Sure it is. Sure it is. And there's a line there somewhere. But here's my concern. I know that even Jesus, in his pain, asked for something that he knew was not a part of God's plan. In his pain, and according to Mark 14, 36, Jesus goes so far as to say this. Listen to his words. All things are possible for you. And then with an imperative says, remove this cup from me. He knows that's not the plan. And he says, you can do anything. Remove this cup. Here's what I think is going on here. I have found that people in pain stop praying. I found this over and over. And you know why? Here's why. Because they are uncomfortable with what they're feeling and what they're struggling with. And I think it is a huge mistake for somebody in pain to stop praying. And I think that part of the problem is that we have this mentality that we have to pray perfectly and in control and come to God with everything cleaned up. 
when the reality is God knows you're a mess. He knows what's going on inside of your soul. He's already heard every thought. And so therefore, I think Psalm 13 tells us something risky. And it's this. Tell Him you're hurting. Tell Him you're frustrated. Tell Him you're scared. Tell Him what you want to do to those who've hurt you. But then don't stay there. And that's the key. Let me give you an illustration. Because I know some of you may feel like I'm pushing the envelope on this. Part of my concern is that I think that in our American, predominant, white, reserved culture, we don't lament well. You go to another part of the world, another part of a subset of our culture, a group of people who really experience pain, just go to the difference between a predominantly white funeral and a predominantly African-American funeral, and you'll see the difference in lament. And I just want to highlight that maybe we read this text too white, to Western. Give you an illustration. When my wife, and by the way, I have her permission to share this with you. You might wonder, when you give an illustration about your wife, do you have permission? Of course I do. You think I'm crazy? So, <laughs> I gotta go home, pal. So yeah, just so you know, I get permission for everything I say. So just relax and listen, okay? Does she know he says that? Yes. So, when my wife was mid-labor with our twins, after 20 plus hours of labor, she was lamenting. She was weary. And I will not forget when she sat up in the bed and looked at me, and I think she grabbed my shirt, and she said, We are never doing this again. (laughs) Now, that was not the moment to analyze her statement for its truthfulness. That was not the moment to give her instruction as to whether or not she should have said that or not. That was not the moment to say, Do you really mean that? Can we talk about it? She's lamenting for crying out loud. And we both knew in that moment that what was coming out of her mouth is what Job calls words that are like wind. There was something helpful about expressing the pain within her soul. And friends, I think, as a man who's experienced pain, certainly there is a line when you can be sinful. But I would tell you that I find far more people who are so guarded, so cautious, they've got to get it all right, that they got all this junk going on in their soul, and God knows it's there. And Psalm 13 says, why don't you just tell him, how long will you forget me, God? I feel like you're not even around anymore. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I don't know why you did this. I think Psalm 13 helps us to get that out. And granted, there's a line. You certainly could sin. But I think many people in their pain are far too bottled up. And Psalm 13 gives voice to the reality of the human experience. So, Jesus helps us because he says, remove this cup from me. But then he concludes, yet not what I will, but what you will. So I think this lamenting, This honest assessment of pain is part of the journey of getting you to embracing God's will. Secondly, there's this notion of prayer. We call out to God in our hurt. So pain, this is how I'm arguing, pain should lead to prayer. So I think this is the point of a lament. You don't lament for lament's sake. 
If you just walk around life telling God that you're upset, what you want to have done to your enemies or how hurt you are, and that's all that you pray, that's not the point of lament. Lament is supposed to be the first of two or three steps to bring you to the reality of who God is. Pain should create great prayer. And there are three things that he longs for. Verse 3, consider me, consider and answer me, O Lord. My God, the first thing is he wants for God to care for him. The word consider means look on me. It has the idea of careful looking, like when God said to Abraham, look to the heavens and see the stars. This is how many of your descendants you will have. The idea is to look with a longing, with a belief, with with incredible care. The idea is for God to see and knows what, know what, go, what is going on, and this is what every person in pain wants, to know that God really cares. It's one thing. For pain to be in your life, it's another to fear that it's pointless or random or cruel. And so he calls, God, consider me. Second thing, he says, God, speak to me. He says, consider me and answer me. The request here is God, speak. Not only does he want to know that God cares, but he wants God to answer him. He wants for God to speak, to act on his behalf. It is this silence and the unexplainable reasons that are behind the pain that are hard to deal with. Therefore, he longs for God to answer him, to speak. Explain this to me. This is what Job wanted. And then finally, to strengthen me, the final thing he prays is he says, light up my eyes. This is a figure of speech to describe spiritual endurance. And you can see why. He says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He feels so weary, so exhausted, so run down that he feels like he's dying. And he wants God to help him so that he can find his strength. And what he feels like is if this doesn't happen, that his enemy will think that they have won. So without God's care, without his um, uh, his, his word, without his strength, the psalmist is not sure that he's going to be able to make it. And listen, this is what every person in pain needs to know. They need to know they're loved, they need instruction, and they need to be encouraged. There are a few things more frightening that pain could be capricious, pointless, or hopeless. And so notice, on the one hand, he's brutally honest with how he feels, and yet on the other hand, he's asking God for specific help. And although he's expressing the depth of pain that he is in, he's still fighting By asking God for help. So he's not lamenting for lament's sake. Now what was remarkable to me is when I was looking at this, it just reminded me how Jesus fulfills all three of these desires. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus, by becoming man, is able to sympathize with our weakness. He understands what it's like to live in a fallen world. He knows pain. And when we come to him in prayer, we have a Savior who really gets it. So the beautiful thing is all three of these desires have been fulfilled in one person named Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 tells us that God in the former days spoke to the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. Meaning that who Jesus is and all that he is for us by coming, becoming flesh and speaking to us about the reality of what God is like, means that we have a sure word from God that God has spoken. He has spoken to us through His Son. In other words, He has explained both the purpose and the point of pain and done done so through Jesus. Paul, reflecting on this, says, All things work together for good, dot, 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 to make us conform to the image of His Son. 
So there's no need to wonder, what's the point and purpose in this? Everything is working out to make you more like Jesus. And finally, Hebrews 4.16, in terms of strength, tells us that since Jesus is the Son of God, since He won the victory, and since He has made reconciliation possible, since He understands, and since He is interceding for us, so then, Hebrews tells us, come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, this Jesus who came to earth to live in your world so he knows pain, who won the victory to set you up to become like him and works all things according to God's will is the same Jesus who says, when you are in pain, come to me and I'll give you mercy and grace and I will help you. And one of the most beautiful things about pain is that in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your desperation, when you're really gut level honest about what's really going on, Jesus comes and strengthens you and you know this is not me, this is him. Pain has a way of validating your faith in Jesus. So, your comfort, listen to this, in your pain is not an idea, it's not a concept, it's not a theory. Your comfort in pain is a person. His name is Jesus, who really understands, who really spoke the word of God, who is really able to give you spiritual strength. So that means that if you're ministering to a person in pain, remember two things. One, like Jesus, personal presence, not your pithy comments, are what is most helpful. Some of the best things you can say to somebody who's in pain is, I am so sorry. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to try and get your mind around it. In fact, the reason that you do that is because you're scared and you want to explain it. And a person in pain doesn't need you to explain it. And even if you could try, it would be shallow and minimal. Instead, just be there and say, I am so sorry. And the second thing is that there is a place of a person's heart that only Jesus can touch. It's remarkable. He's willing and able to do so. But the reality is, there's a part of the heart that can only be touched by the person of Jesus. And pain has an unbelievable way of showing us that reality. So we move from gut-level honest pain to prayer, and then finally to providence. We come to the end of the psalm, which gives us the other side of the tension. So we have pain beyond belief, but on the other side we've got divine sovereignty or divine providence beyond comprehension. And pain is simply living, and the reality is when you're in pain you live in this this constant tension. Psalm 13 leads us to the sacred ground of a lament where we see that undergirding pain is the firm assurance that God is in control and he is completely worthy of our trust. Years ago, I heard someone summarize it like this. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. I want you to think about that for a moment. Keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. There's all sorts of great hope in that statement. I want to show you this. In regards to keep trusting, verse 5, notice the bent of the psalmist at the end, verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Notice there's three different ways that the psalmist seems as though he's literally dragging his own heart to come and worship. So he's lamenting. He's being gut level honest, but he's not staying there. Instead, he is going to keep trusting. He says, I have trusted. I, my heart will rejoice. I will sing. In other words, there's a clear choice that he is making here, a choice that he's making in faith. So while there are many things that a person in pain can't control, and while there's many things that they can do, there's one thing that they can do, which is they continually can keep trusting. What's remarkable is that there's no indication in the psalm that the circumstances of his life changed or that they were altered. Instead, it is that he is choosing to trust in the midst of his pain. He is choosing to sing in the midst of his grief. So this psalm shows us that he is doing all of this trusting and rejoicing and singing even while he is still wondering how long, O Lord. See, he's doing both at the same time. Some people think that in order to grieve biblically, you have to get off the how long and just sing. No. According to this psalm, you do both at the same time. They're so close and so intricately linked that the reality is he's deeply struggling and yet still trusting. He is deeply hurting, yet rejoicing. He is fearful, yet singing. You see? Victory over pain and sorrow doesn't mean that the pain and the sorrow are necessarily gone. Rather, it means that they do not define you or control you. You find a new normal, and while in your pain, you act in a trusting manner. While in your grieving, you still trust. While still really hurting, you still sing. And you do them in faith even though you feel like a person who has a hole in your soul. So if you're in pain and you're here today and you sang and you worshipped and you tried and yet you're still hurting, you're doing far better than you realize. And you just keep doing that over and over and over as God allows the pain to lift. So keep trusting, and then it says, the one who keeps us trusting. Look at verse 5 again. Notice what he trusts in. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I shall, I will rejoice in your salvation. Deal, for you have dealt bountifully for me. So everything he lists are things that are rooted to God's past actions. His steadfast love is this covenant love of God. This rejoicing in your salvation is what God had promised to do. And this dealing bountifully with me is what the psalmist sees when he looks back on his life. He's banking his future on God's ability to give him grace in the future. In other words, he looks at his life and says, if God has been faithful in the past, then he will surely be faithful in the future. If God has been gracious to me before, he can be trusted to be gracious in the future. The point is simply that we are a part of God's plan and that he can be trusted. That he is trusting, this psalmist is trusting in God's ability to be God. So in the midst of his pain, what does he do? He looks back. He sees that God has proven over and over that he is worthy of being trusted. And even though in his pain his faith is weak, even though in the midst of your pain your faith is weak, you can still trust knowing that it's only by God's power that you can even think thoughts of trust. So when you're in pain, where do thoughts of trust come from? They don't come from you. 
you're in the middle, and you know it, this, this, this hardship would tank your faith, but yet you still are trusting. That doesn't come just from you. Oh yeah, you're involved, but that's the sustaining power of God's grace in your life. And you know that in your trusting, you're trusting in the one who's causing you to trust. And so you keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. The same God who today is worthy to be trusted is the same God who keeps us trusting all the way to the end. So we have pain, and then prayer, and then providence. And what this psalm does is give us an unbelievable help in terms of what it means to live with pain that's beyond belief and divine providence beyond comprehension. And it shows us the lamentable path that, frankly, some of you are on today. It shows us a path that some of you will be on in the future. And so my challenge to you today is this, that if you find yourself hurting, listen to Psalm 13. Be honest with God about the pain. Tell Him about it. Call out to Him in the midst of your hurt. Don't remain in your lament, but instead lament and pray and trust. And in the midst of all of your sorrow, you cling to the reality that you can keep trusting this One who keeps you trusting. So you know the song Amazing Grace. I know you know it. In between Newton's first chorus of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and When We've Been There 10,000 Years, he writes this. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" Then, he says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And notice the faith in future grace. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring or lead me home. And finally, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. What is he saying? He's saying when you say how long, O Lord, you keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. So Father, I ask you to pour out your mercy and your grace on those today who in the midst of their pain find voice in Psalm 13. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of sorrow and hardship and pain that you give us these kind of texts so that we can come to you and be honest, we can pour out our hearts to you and you understand. And Lord, even when we pray in a way that doesn't fit with your will, your spirit reorients our prayers and that you're a gracious God 
who understands the reality of our lament. And I pray specifically for some believers who are here today who, because of their pain, have in small or in significant ways began a journey away from you. And I pray that today would begin a new turning where they would begin to start to trust the one who keeps them trusting. And Father, for those who may not know you at all because of their lack of a relationship with your Son, who float through life and pain with no mooring, I pray that today they would see and behold the beauty of a Savior who became flesh, who understands, who made reconciliation and invites us to come boldly to receive mercy and help. 